0: to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's great to be here with you, and um, this is a, a passage that has had just a deep uh, it's, it's become dear to my heart. And um, as I've, you know, one of the things that, first things that dawned on me as I became a Christian uh, was that who I was before is not who I am anymore. And yet, we all live with some sort of gap between our knowledge of scripture and our actual practice. It's one thing to have like an intellectual knowledge of the truth, and it's quite another thing for the truth to become your own, where its power is actually unleashed in your life in a way that leads to change in areas where change is most needed. Why is it that many of us continue to revert to old paths when we know that they are contrary to the path of righteousness and when they lead to breakdown in our lives. That's the question that's before us today. You know it's not working for you, but it has become second nature. It's become a sort of a default pattern. Maybe you've even made a resolution to change, but in the heat of the moment, there it is again, Sin is deceitful. And so, uh, we're called to walk in a new sort of way. And Paul is a Jewish Christian writing to predominantly Gentiles. At least that's my understanding of what's going on in Ephesians. And he's already exhorted them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've been called And this, uh, in the verses just before, I don't know when you were last in Ephesians 4, I think it's been at least a month maybe, or something close to a month. But in the verses just, in the context just before uh, these verses that we're about to look at, Paul uses the metaphor of the human body to help believers understand that they have been called to live as part of a spiritual household, which is organically related to Christ and to each other. And so uh, he begins the text here with a therefore. And whenever there's a therefore it means that he's drawing uh, out some sort of implications from what he's previously said. So in effect he's saying in light of all that's gone before, how are you to grow up in all things in Christ? So that's uh, this this word calling in in verse 1 of chapter 4 implies that we've been summoned by the king to live under a new reign. So in Ephesians 4, to 24, Paul uses the categories of old man and new man. And in your translation, if you have the ESV, it's the old self and it's the new self. And that's kind of confusing. But Um, Old man and new man is actually technical language. So I'm going to, I don't want to confuse you, but I'm going to use those terms. And he uses them to contrast the old humanity with the new humanity, to which they and now we belong. But before he instructs them how they're meant to live, it is vitally important for them to first grasp who they were and why the life they once lived is utterly contrary to who they are now and who we are now. So Paul paints a picture of the outlook of the old humanity. The, the outlook that governs who we once were and the pattern of life to which it leads. And, you know, like in a way, as you look at this, you're going to say, well, not everybody goes as far as uh, what he says or what he describes in the text in terms of um, you know throwing off constraints in their life but um, what he's describing is the trajectory of sin where it leads where it goes in the heart and how it then of course uh, bubbles up to the surface of our lives and so even though not everybody's life uh, goes as um, far off the deep end as, as some of the, the, the description of the people that he's giving here. Th- this is the direction of sin. And so he wants us to understand uh, the utter absurdity of this outlook and its values that once shaped their hearts. And that once shaped our hearts, if you're a Christian here today. For although they now belong to the new humanity, they're still surrounded by those who live according to the ways of the old humanity. And they still, and we still, experience its allure. So there's a kind of an ethos uh, uh, that's being described here, as well as, uh, like, there's a... Paul's giving a, like a psychological analysis of the human condition that's incredibly profound here. So he reminds them of what they had already been taught, of the need for ongoing sanctification. So he reminds them of who they are in Christ to enable them to discern what makes change possible, where change is needed, and how to change in such a way that it endures. The passage that's before us divides neatly into two parts. First, Paul gives a psychosocial analysis of the existence of those whose lives are governed by the ethos of the old humanity, which prizes autonomy or self-rule, to convince them of its contrariety to who they are and to the way of the new humanity. And in the second major section, which is from verses 22 to 24, Paul reminds us of what's now true of us in order to motivate us to reorder the habits of our hearts in line with the character of the new humanity. And then he gives a paradigm for how to do that. So let's look at um, verses, uh, before we look at uh, verses 17 to 19, I want to I want to give some um, introductory thoughts to this section, um, which describes the condition of the old humanity, or the humanity under the old dominion. He uses the the term walk. Um, Some translations probably say live, but walk is a metaphor that comes from the Old Testament, and it's used in the Old Testament with wisdom, literature, And it refers to a way of life. Um, That's uh, Psalm 1, for instance, uses uh, contrasts, two different walks, two different ways of life. And there he warns that the seductive pull of the sinful way of life exerts itself through the influence of relationships upon our hearts. He warns of the potential negative impact that close relationships with people who are ruled by a godless outlook can have. Why? Because their manner of life is guided by a foolish outlook, which he calls the counsel of the ungodly. And the implication is that the people that we hang out with will tend to rub off on us. And so this is kind of the the background of uh, Paul's concern as he looks at these people who are living in Ephesus, which is, you know, a part, you know, a place where uh, the temple of Diana is, and where there's, uh, you know, temple prostitution going on, and um, and so they're surrounded by. Uh, I worked in New York and um, spent nine years uh, commuting from Philadelphia to New York when I when I counsel a redeemer, and uh, yeah, New York is a, a place where. Uh, just being in that environment, um, it's, it has a pull to it. it there's a, a kind of social pressure to be a certain kind of a person and to look a certain kind of a way. And so in, a, in, the, in the same way, for these people, Paul is concerned that the Ephesians become more aware of that outlook that they're surrounded by and its seductive pull, and he wants to unmask it. He wants to show its underside. So um, it's important as we talk about, you know, that my, my the title of my message is Walking According to the New Humanity. Um, it's important for us to kind of think for a minute about, you know, what, what's this, this thing about the new humanity? Throughout Ephesians, Paul distinguishes two kinds of humanity, which also correspond to two rival dominions. The first one um, we're talking about here in verses 17 to 19 um, is is described initially at at the beginning of chapter 2, Ephesians 2, where he says that He describes the old humanity as those who live according to the passions of their flesh and by nature are children of wrath. Okay, and you know, he talks about how they're under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And so you see the idea of a dominion. In contrast, in Ephesians 1 verses 20 to 22, Paul presents Christ as the risen and exalted king, who is now saving people out of the old dominion and translating them into a new realm. In verse 21 of chapter one, he says that Christ now rules over every power and authority, not only in this age, but in the age to come, which refers to um, the new creation that has broken into the present. The age to come is what scripture calls it through faith in Christ we've become citizens of the age to come. So Paul when he says in 122 and he put all things under his feet, that is an interesting expression. I don't know if you picked up on that, but that is a reference to Christ as the last Adam who came to fulfill the dominion mandate that the first was given to the first Adam. So the new humanity so we talked about two different dominions, the, the, the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, the dominion of Christ, and Christ is over all. Um, but now, there's two humanities. So I'm going to talk about the new humanity for a second in Ephesians, um, which is uh, described or elsewhere in Ephesians. Paul mentions, for instance, in verse 10 of chapter 2, that we are his workmanship created, kathesis in Greek, Um, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So that word created refers to a supernatural recreation of a new people created to do good works. It's an artistic metaphor. The Greek is poema, and it depicts God as the master poet whose in each of our lives, our, each, of you, each of you are his work of art. And you're this work of art that's in process. And that's, that's kind of part of how sanctification, uh, God is actually at work renewing us. So we've been made new, but he's at work renewing us. But the, the, the goal of this um, work that he's doing is that we would display his glory His wisdom, and his beauty. How so? Through the good works that he's prepared for us to walk in. Interestingly, the same verb created, katesis, occurs also in 2.15, where Paul speaks about the new humanity made up of both reconciled Gentiles and Jews. If you are in Christ, you belong to this new humanity. So here in, let's turn our attention then to verses 17 to 19. Here in verses 17 to 19, he describes uh, the condition of the old humanity. First, he makes a general statement um, that, um, that people walk in the futility of their minds. Then in verse 18, he tells us the cause of that futility. And in 19, he gives us the consequences of that futility. So um, when he says in, uh, their manner of life is characterized by futility, what does he mean? Well, he talks about the futility of their minds. Let's just think for a minute about what, what the word mind is, is how, what he means by that. Um, the, the word mind um, is dianoia, and it's It could be translated thinking or mind, but interestingly, we have a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. It's, um, and we know from how Hebrew words are translated into Greek, um, we know like words that are used interchangeably. And so the word for heart in Hebrew is translated sometimes into Greek as dianoia, which is what we, the word here, and other times it's translated as cardia, which is the other Greek word, uh, which indicates um, what is the heart. It's the center of our perception. So what's, what's being said here is that the Gentiles' entire outlook upon life, their whole reaction to it, and, and their way of living their lives, um, that's what's what um, Paul's talking about when he says according to the futility of their minds. Now what what is meant exactly by futility? Well, um, some of you uh, I presume have read the book of Ecclesiastes, so, uh, but let's think for a minute about uh, you know, uh, futility is that which does not lead to a goal. It means something that's aimless, pointless, lacking in direction, and is utterly and absolutely empty. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, the implication is um, that their every effort to solve the jigsaw puzzle of existence was doomed to frustration. It's a life that is characterized by seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in the creation rather than in the creator and worshiping it rather than him. And such a life only leads to disappointment. Now I don't know uh, if you've read uh, John Bunyan's masterpiece, uh, *Pilgrim's Progress*, but in there, he he describes the, you know the conversion of Christian. It's sort of an allegory of the Christian life, and Christians on this journey. There's this journey motif, and uh, he's on the way to the celestial city, and he he's there are all these characters that come into his life that are, are there to tempt him and um, dis- divert him from the way of the path that he's on. So you have this idea of a way of life or a path that he's on. And one of the places that he goes to or through is called Vanity Fair, right? And so when you think about people walking in the futility of their minds, if you've read John Bunyan, you get a picturesque description of of what that looks like in Vanity Fair. Now, what, what might be a modern-day counterpart of that? Well, um, how many of you have, have lived, uh, gone, gone away to university and lived in sort of, uh, like, on campus? Just a few of you. Um, have you. Have you noticed that there's a sort of party culture um, in the university campus? Uh, and there's a kind of, um, there's a poll there. Right? And what what does that embody, um, that party culture? Well, um, uh, people trying to have fun and throwing off all constraints, boasting about the latest thing that I got or boasting about, you know, the latest person that I slept with, Um, crafting their image in such a way that that they'll be perceived as cool. Irving Goffman calls this impression management. And he says we're, we're at it all the time, even when we're not thinking about it. We're always trying to manipulate people's impression of us. And so often people's motives in going to these kinds of parties is to rub shoulders with people of influence or cool people, but also to just indulge their flesh. And so that's a kind of one example of people of what it's like to sort of the aimlessness and the pointlessness and walking. And, you know, for me as an introvert, um, my experience of a lot of parties is that people just really, they're, they don't want to go deep, so they stay on the surface. They're content to be shallow. But the idea is to be shallow but not boring. And so I guess, you know, you try to be funny or you know, come up with uh, some interesting stories to talk about. But it's just an aimless existence. And I'm not a party pooper here, right? I, I, I'm for birthday parties and Christmas parties, and so I'm not, I'm not knocking parties. In fact, the biggest party in all of Scripture is in uh, when the, the prodigal son comes home. Like he goes out seeking one kind of party, and he comes home to an, an altogether different kind of party, a celebration. So, a party in its best sense is a a sort of spin-off of what the Old Testament calls a festival. It's a a celebration, and uh, so we're we're not here to to say, don't touch, or don't do this, or don't go to this. Um, Now, because it's too painful to face the meaninglessness of their existence, people avoid asking deeper questions. Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 17th century, he was a philosopher, mathematician, Christian, who lived in the 17th century, said that under the surface, non-believers are driven by an experience of anxiety about the human condition that causes them to think of either present or threatened miseries. And he identified two conflicting impulses or two conflicting instincts. The first instinct um, is a secret instinct that drives people away to seek external diversion. He said people were living in external diversion and distraction. He called it um, people were gaming because they had lots of money to gamble. They were gaming and chasing skirts is the way that he called it. And he says, um, the emptiness they feel leads to boredom. And rather than address the deeper problem, they look for all kinds of ways to divert themselves, which only temporarily soothes their hearts but leaves them empty. But... Another secret instinct tells them that the only true happiness lies in rest. And not in the excitements that they keep chasing after. Yet, it's a rest that can only be found through the gospel, which, which, is, um, which offers new life in Christ, but which they would rather push away. So, why do people walk and the futility of their minds. Well, um, why is it that non-believers are generally uninterested in engaging in conversation about Christ? Why do people tend to assume that Christ is irrelevant to them? And why, when people hear the gospel, do they dismiss it as nonsense? In verse 18, Paul says that the root of people's problems is a God problem. He tells us it's because they choose to live in denial regarding the source, the true source of the problem, namely the condition of their hearts. And he gives a fourfold answer to the question of why do people walk according to the futility of their minds. First, they're darkened in their understanding. And this is a metaphor for blindness, spiritual blindness, which means that you lack the ability not only to understand why your life breaks down, But also, uh, it means that you're unaware of your blindness. You're oblivious to it. You don't think you're blind. So you focus on the symptoms, but you never quite get down to the cause of your problems. Your problem is that you're ruled by desires that are contrary to God, and you live as though God doesn't matter. You're blind to the fact that you are made for a relationship of dependence on God, and that you um, and, and so you try to live apart from him. And you're blind to the fact that it leads to breakdown. The second, the, the second is um, that they're in a condition of alienation from God. So that they can't even comprehend the kind of existence that we were made for. That's, that's what alienation from God results in. And what it is that we're missing out on if we don't have God in our life. Third... What's the real cause of the blindness? Paul says it's, it's due to the hardness of their hearts. Hardness is a metaphor, right? You know, the heart is not like a physical organ when he's talking about the heart here. Um, uh, what does Paul mean by that? Well, if the heart is the motivational center of our being, it's the source of our actions, our attitudes, our very disposition for or against something. And, you know, what's really interesting about the heart is that because God made us in his image, he hardwired us with a capacity for awe so that we see, as we see and experience the wonder and beauty of God's works, we're meant to respond with amazement and with praise. But what do we do? We fall in love with and become enamored with the gifts of God rather than the giver, and we completely forget who it is that they come from, and, and the gifts are really just meant to be a signpost to point us back to the greatness, and the beauty, and the glory of the one who made all things to be enjoyed under him. So sin hijacks our capacity, our awe capacity, and um, we replace the worship of God with self-worship, the same desire for self-rule, for autonomy, um, continues to cause people to resist God. And that's what he means when he's talking about that, that hardening. And, and the interesting thing is the last term that he, he uses, he says, um, who have given themselves over. He, says, it, he uses the word ignorance, but it's, it's a willful ignorance because they've given themselves over. to to this lifestyle uh, that's contrary to God. Interestingly, in Romans 1, Paul tells us that people know God. There's some sense in which people know that he's there, and they owe their existence to him, but they suppress that knowledge. They suppress the knowledge of God um, that's in them, and that's written on their hearts, and instead look to and replace God with idols in their hearts. And, and so he calls this the great exchange. Um, there in Romans, God gives people over. But here in Ephesians, we see people give themselves. We give ourselves over. So, so I think if you put those two things together, you know, sin causes us to give ourselves over to our lusts. Not just sexual lusts, but you know, over desires. Um, and, and then, of course... The, the, the more entrenched we become, eventually uh, there's a kind of process where we can't go back, where there's a hardening. And so here Paul, uh, in uh, verse 19, we're given insight into the accompanying harvest of corruption, uh, uh, where um, it illustrates sin's life dominating Undercurrent. So I don't know if you noticed that, but like there's a dem- law of diminishing returns to sin. And uh, he uses three terms to describe this breakdown. Um, he, first of all, he uses the word calloused. He says they become calloused, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. What, what, but but how do people become calloused? Will they engage in debauchery and licentiousness? Um, which describes a sort of conscious neglect of measures and limits, a refusal to follow any distinct way or order. It refers to an array of choices for the self. The second term that he uses here is covetousness to describe the inner, internal uh, thing that keeps driving people toward debauchery and licentiousness. And in Ephesians 5, 3 and 5, it's related to idolatry, which happens any time we put something in the place of God in our hearts. And so this, uh, the use here suggests that um, people who aren't in a proper relationship to God live in excess and can never be satisfied, right? And yet, you know, we think if we just had more or something else, we would be. And that's part of the deception of it. And so you see there's a kind of self-deception that's being described in this this part of Ephesians 4. And then the last is impurity, um, which refers to unrestrained sexual behavior. And impurity causes you to view people as objects. Your impure desires become all-consuming and it twists your idea of love into the opposite. Of love you think that you because someone makes you feel good uh, someone once said um, when a guy says to his girlfriend I love you what he really means is I love me and I want you <laughs> so uh, we have to learn uh, if, if you're married you know that you have to learn uh, like sacrificial love it doesn't come naturally and uh, those, those feelings can ebb and flow. Um, self-deception then leads to a harvest of bad consequences. Our desires for satisfaction are insatiable apart from God. And all you need to do to become an addict is just give yourself over to your desires for some form of pleasure. That's all you need to do. Just give in to them. And your, impu- your impure desires will take over and lead to a harvest, to a feedback loop, a harvest of corruption. What are the dynamics of this sort of feedback loop? Well, think of drinking. Take drinking as an example. Um, I don't know how many of you have friends or family members that have, um, that are under the, uh, the, the power of a, a drinking habit and, and it's out of control. Um, I have somebody in my life who I dearly love, that has struggled with this on and off over many years. Um, But early on, following an episode of getting drunk, you'll experience, the person will experience guilt and shame and possibly regret. But instead of turning back to God, what do they do? They turn even more to the habit to drown it out. And as they give themselves to the habit more and more, they become desensitized. The law of diminishing returns causes them to indulge more debauchery. Because alcohol loosens your inhibitions, it may, me- may mean that you end up engaging in more daring behaviors, like infidelity. And the more you drink, the smaller your capacity will be for handling problems of any sort that come into your life. Because you're so used to medicating to deal with discomfort in your life, you have no capacity for navigating the difficulties of hardship, or almost no capacity. Your lack of self-control leads to an inability to exercise restraint, and you tend to break promises when they require any sort of sacrifice. You lash out at people that get in the way of what you want whenever they do. And so there's a life-dominating undercurrent. It begins to cut across every area. You cover and hide. You lie. You mismanage money. You manipulate others to get your way. You blame shift. That's what the life-dominating trajectory of sin is. Now, I remember someone who came to me for help who had backslid and had become calloused. So I'm going to use this case study, and I'm going to come back to it. I just want you to know that I've disguised certain details in the case study so you would never recognize who this is. Uh, It's not even in this area. But um, I'll call call him Dominic. Um, And it's a very hope-giving story when you get to the end of our message today. But Dominic grew up in a Latino culture where he and many of his friends partied, drank, and womanized. And he came to the U.S., where he became a Christian and he met his wife and he trained in law and went into corporate law but he had problems in his marriage and he never learned how to work through and resolve conflict and so he grew distant from his wife and became resentful toward her. So what had had been for him an occasional problem with porn spun out of control. In his misery, he turned to it more and more until he became entrenched. He couldn't even remember the last time he felt attracted to his wife when he came to me for help. He went back home to his country for a visit and reconnected with some of his old friends. And he got drunk a few times and hooked up with three different women. When he came to me, he was racked with guilt felt enslaved and hopeless about changing and afraid of what would happen if he stayed on this path." So this is a a sort of um, an example of callousness. But, you know, there are much more subtler examples of callousness. Um, uh, Like, think about, do you have anyone in your life that you feel an attitude of disdain or contempt toward? Maybe you're just a person who lacks empathy towards people in general um, when their lives break down, a lack of grace, a lack of mercy. There's a hardness about you. Maybe you're a person that, I have this fantasy that I could get a wand like Harry Potter and wave it at people. And that every time they point the finger, their finger would get bigger, right? How big would your finger get (laughs) if I could do that? You know you 're a person who loves to point the finger, but you hardly ever take responsibility for your own issues. These are examples of what it means to become callous so let's let 's turn to our uh, oh boy, is it really <laughs> okay let 's quickly uh, turn to to the rest of our verses here um, i did i did I did do a timer here. Um, And I told Fletcher it would be a miracle if I could do this in 35 minutes. But let's, you know, let's quickly look at there's two, um, like, uh, under the call to reorder the habits of our heart to reflect the character of the new humanity. um, There's two basic um, points. One is the basis for the appeal, which is that Christ has revealed himself to us and reoriented our hearts. He says, you have not so learned Christ. How How do you learn a person? Well, um, the, you learn in the sense of you grasp who he is and what he came to do to free people from slavery from slavery to sin. Um, I, I, I want to, um, uh, I need to s- skip over some of this material that I have here because obviously I've gotten carried away with my time. Uh, but um, one of the things that I'll say is like the, the basic point here is what happened, what has happened to us, what God has already done to us. And so in 1 Corinthians, after listing a series of life-controlling sins, he says, these some of you were, but you are washed, you are cleansed, and you are sanctified. So there's an initial sanctification that's already, we've been taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. We've been put under a new dominion. And so there's a sense in which we have already put off the old man. It's, It's a new status that we've received. We're no longer who we were in Adam, but yet he tells us, to put off the old man and put on the new here. And so he's giving us a paradigm for becoming a whole new kind of person. Now, there are three, like, components to this. Um, Two principles. The first is the governing principle um, of the old that we're to put off. It's corrupt according to the deceitful desires. Deceitful is lies, desires, has to do with the, the... the things that rule us, that motivate us, that control us. Um, So character is made up of a series of habits that arise from a Godward disposition. And, you know, Fletcher's going to go on to talk about Ephesians um, 4, 25 to 32. He gives a series of examples, people lying, stealing, um, uh, corrupt speech, anger, unforgiveness. These are the kinds of things that that are the result of the deceitful desires and they shape our habits and so essentially um, I want to come back to um, Dominic here Um, uh, as we listened for deeper heart themes I asked Dominic why he thought he became dissatisfied so quickly after hooking up with a woman and he said he loved the experience of being desired sexually it gave his ego a boost he loved the initial challenge of winning her but not the commitment and so we came to the conclusion that what drove his addiction was envy and wanting what wasn't his and also power. So those were the more prominent deceitful desires that Dominic needed to repent of and put off. And put. And, and the interesting thing is that you will, you will probably never fully know all the things that could motivate us. There, there's not one idol that we gravitate towards. Our, our hearts are... are um, quick to make idols out of all kinds of things. But these were the ones that were. So, so then there's a process for facilitating the, the Spirit's work of renewing the minds. What is that process? Well, um, first of all, this is a divine passive. So be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The idea that God does the renewing, but we're also to be involved intentionally in examining ourselves in this process. David said, um, you know, search me and see if there be any um, you know anything in me that that leads me away from you, God, and lead me in the way everlasting. So, how do we? You know, there's two components to searching ourselves. One, we how you know how do we locate guilt in our lives, and two, how do we actively engage in the renewing of our minds? There's four ways that we locate guilt. One, you feel alienation and a dirtiness after you sin. So your conscience, you're actually attuned to your conscience. Second, the example of others, right? Um, so I'm feeling guilty right now because Fletcher's so good with time and I'm not. <laughs> Third, you get a taste of God's grace at work in one area of your life and you want more. So you develop a habit of examining your reactions. Lord, show me how you wanna work in me. And then fourth, Obviously, and most importantly, in the light of God's word and how it exposes us. God is the searcher of hearts, and he exposes the thoughts and the intents of the heart. How do we actively engage in renewing our minds? Well, it's usually sometimes if you're reading and meditating on scripture, if you do that um, on a daily basis, um, then that that can be an occasion for God to begin to show you things and uh, to work in you, and I hope you're doing that. But often it's through a difficult situation that's provoking a sinful reaction, becomes the occasion for the renewing of the mind. So um, we, you know, God is sovereign over every situation, but we're often caught off guard and we forget that he orchestrates even the difficulties in our lives. And so, um, you know, we need to listen for how God wants to work redemptively in a trial. And what do we listen to? What are our emotional reactions saying? You know, fear says that something that's too important to me, usually fear says something that's too important to me is being threatened. Fear isn't inherently bad, it's a warning system. And, but but most of the time we experience fear, something we love too much is being threatened. Second, anger, something I love too much is being blocked. And third, discouragement, the thing that I want is moving farther and farther away from me so I feel discouraged or depressed. Um, As we, to come back to Dominic, together we reflected on the parallels between Jacob's story and Dominic's story. And um, Jacob connived to get his way and he had an instrumental approach to relationships. He just used people to get what he wanted. Dominic identified with Jacob's pattern of seeking the blessing on his own terms. Jacob, all through his life, sought God's blessing on his own terms until he had this wrestling match with a divine figure, whether it was an angel or whether it was God, uh, you can figure that out in your own time. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't come to a, a firm conclusion. But Jacob um, said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And his hip was put out of joint. And of course, Dominic said um, that he saw that God was using this destructive feedback loop in his life to expose him and to show him how broken he was. And we also reflected on the contrast between Adam and Christ. In Philippians 2, which we read today, right? How Adam reached up for what was not rightfully his, and yet Christ gave up what was rightfully his to come down to serve. And so the last thing is the governing principle for putting on the new man. So Jesus is the image of the new humanity he's the first new man right um, Neil Armstrong said when he stepped onto the moon a small step for a man a giant leap for humanity when Jesus landed on the first cre- on the new creation in heaven he was the first man the first fruits of a new order of humanity and so we belong to that new humanity and he models to us what true humanness is he models the fear of the lord which enabled him to always make sound judgments. How would your perspective change if you were to view your struggle as God's instrument to change you? What does it look like to turn toward God in your struggle? Repentance, to, to let go, to see the deceitful desires and to confess them to God. What would it look like to be ruled by right desires for love of God and love for others? Um, so if the goal is character, that of becoming a whole new kind of person, what am I called to put on? And, and that's, I think, um, the fascinating thing about Dominic's story is how, how did this new governing principle become effective in his life? Well, gradually, of course, but a major turn, turn point for Dominic was when he could begin to see how this theme of power and envy and competitive ambition showed up in other areas of his life. He began to see how the issues of his heart were playing out in other theaters of his life and to get excited about change. As he realized his needs for God's grace to change and he struggled to face his harvest, he shed many tears. Not only did he experience a new freedom from his porn addiction, but he began to learn a whole new way of relating to his wife and others, motivated by... A practice of honesty in the place of lying, vulnerability in the place of hiding, and sacrificial serving the needs of others instead of consuming. In conclusion, I just want to ask a few questions. Peter says, this is who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what it means to belong to the new humanity. That's your purpose. And so let me just ask you, where do you see breakdown in your life? Where have you become calloused? Are there zones where you've become resistant to the spirit's conviction? Is there an entrenched pattern of idolatry in your life that keeps you enslaved? What's the most difficult relationship in your life and how are you doing with that? That is actually probably a good measure of where you really are with God. What level of access do you give others in your life? Are there people in your life who know your weaknesses and struggles and can speak into your life? What one area is God speaking to you about this morning? What would be an initial step that you could take towards change in your hearts? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes. Thank you that you have begun the work you've begun. You are going to carry on to completion. Would you give us eyes to see who you are and what it means to live in the light of who you are? In Christ's name I pray, amen.